being able to have these mailed to your home can reduce a lot of barriers to abortion access. And I think that that is just one of the ways that medication abortion can act as a tool for reproductive justice. It can really give you the ability to take control of your own health care, which I think is something that a lot of people are wanting to do, especially now in the COVID era. I think the idea of being able to have some control over what's happening to you is really necessary and comforting right now. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to On Health, everybody. I feel like I have an unfair advantage on my wonderful guest today because I knew her before she knew me. (laughs) And I found her through an organization that I have followed for a couple of years now called Plan C, which I'm going to leave to my guest to tell you all about because that's who she works for and with. And I attended an online uh, workshop that was just a video recording of an intensive that she did. And it was really fabulous on all things abortion medication. And I just knew I had to bring her on on health to bring her unique perspectives uh, in so many ways, her own perspectives as a master's in public health, which I'm going to share her bio in just a minute, her own views on diversity and inclusion that I know she brings on reproductive justice. And also I'm going to guess she's less than half my age. So she's bringing a whole cool view that is different than the view I have at the vantage point of being a menopausal woman who's been in healthcare for a really long time. So my guest today is Imani Wilson Shabazz. She's a recent graduate of the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. And I'm doing like big props on that. That's amazing. (laughs) Earning an MPH in community health sciences with a certificate in population and reproductive health. She is currently a PhD candidate in social and behavioral sciences at Temple University. Her research focuses is on transforming family planning systems and institutions to empower queer individuals of color to make informed and affirmed reproductive choices. Ms. Wilson Shabazz currently works at Plan C as their partnerships and engagement manager, facilitating community partnerships to increase awareness of abortion pill access around the country. She also provides lectures, webinars, and educational videos, which are really good. I saw one on how to advocate for and promote medication abortion access in diverse communities. Welcome to On Health. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for the kudos. I know it feels like graduating with a public health degree and a pandemic is like ironic, but it's ironic. It's important. We need you. I know. It's so yeah. I I was so happy to do it, even though at the time I originally applied, COVID hadn't yet hit the scene. So I didn't even know it was coming. 
Well, and I looked at your more expanded bio on LinkedIn because I always try to look at the background of my guests. And you bring some other trainings to the table too. So your MPH and your PhD are kind of the formal recognizable credentials, but you've done some pretty significant training around sexuality, education, fertility awareness. So I would love to just go back and find out where your interest in reproductive health started. What brought you to this work? So what really got me into reproductive health was my sex education course back in ninth grade. So I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. We had abstinent, I guess you could call it abstinence focused sex education. And we played this really sadistic game in this class where it was called like tough choices. And the whole premise was on this piece of paper, you had to write down like where you wanted to go to school, like college, your most prized possession, your family member, like your mom, your dad, three things you wanted out of life. So like, I don't know, like happiness or success, financial stability, whatever you wrote down. And then it was like, so unfortunately you had sex before you were married and you got pregnant and pregnancy requires sacrifice, especially at this age. So you need to like cross three things off your list. And I was in all girls school. <laughs> which is a bunch of girls sitting in this classroom crossing off their hopes and dreams in this sex education class. And it was so, it was such a traumatic experience. Like I'm sure like half of us were like crying and it was just such a, an awful experience, but it really made me think because I actually had a pretty like sex positive mom and like family. And so it was just such a weird, like cognitive dissonance situation where I was like, somebody's lying. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of what really got me into reproductive health in general. And it's kind of grown from there. Ever since that experience, I've been like, no, like I don't want anyone else to do this game ever again. And so that kind of is what got me on this path. It's so interesting when you talk with people about their sex education classes, sort of ranging from like fourth grade to ninth grade. And you almost never hear a good story. Either it was useless or it was terrifying or both. Yeah. Didn't really give anybody real information. And most abstinence oriented programs don't work anyway. So we really need to be educating people about what's real. I'm so curious, what does it look like to have a sex positive mom? If you feel comfortable talking about that, what was your orientation there? compared to what you got in school? I don't know if she would have used sex positive. I think she says that mm -hmm. she was a realistic parent. And so she's like, I know teenagers are going to have sex. Like when I was a teenager, people were having sex. So it would be like weird if I would assume that y'all wouldn't be having sex at y'all. <laughs> and so she was very much so like, if, if you need anything, let me know. Like, she was the type of parent who would get those like care of keeping of you books, like those like body books to like have us read. She was very much so like, if you want to get on birth control, like, let me know. I'll take you to the doctor's office. If you're interested in sex toys, which at the time it was like very cringy as like a teenager and your mom was trying to talk to you about like sex toys, but like, yeah, that would be, my mom was like a, a feminist 
1960s. And it was the same thing. And I was just like, mom. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm grateful for it. Like that she was able to like give me that language and set me up on a path to feel comfortable talking about these things and making sure we felt comfortable saying no to things that we didn't want to do. And so I really think that's kind of what that sex positivity meant for her, or at least meant to me looking at her. And so then when the class happened, I was like, this is so weird. Why would they say this? (laughs) And then I I do remember like going home to my mom and talking about it. And she was like, I don't know why they would say that either. But definitely know like if they're not going to answer your questions, I will. And I was like, everybody needs to have their questions answered because I know that there are people in that class who aren't going to have parents like mine who are going to believe that and live their life probably unpacking that (laughs) specific game for like years to come. And so I think it was definitely that particular class and that particular game that made me think like, no, something definitely needs to change specifically in the South. And now I've kind of branched out into a whole host of different things, but that's, that's really where, where it started. So what was your trajectory from there? So you're in ninth grade. That clearly had a huge impact. Definitely not the impact the teacher, I think, meant to have, but it was a positive impact indirectly. When did you start actually getting more formal training and what did you do to get more educated for yourself and and on the path of the work that you were going to do? Yeah. So at the time I thought I wanted to be a sex therapist. Like I thought I wanted to be the person that was going to help these people unpack this trauma. And so I took AP psychology courses. I was going to go to college and be a psychologist. I ended up picking cognitive science and it was like a, at USC where I did my undergrad, they had like a human thinking and decision-making, which kind of brought in like communications and psychology. And then I did a gender studies and human sexuality. So it was a double major that Mm -hmm. I did there. And honestly, I had a a blast. If there was a course on sexuality that I could take, I took it. And I did a research project for the Magnair Scholars Program there on how abstinence-only sex education disproportionately disadvantages Black women and girls in the South. There's a whole host of history on how abstinence-only sex education courses are racist and have very real racial disparities come about as a result of them. And so it was interesting to kind of be able to take that experience and translate it into formal research and to be able to talk to people like, hey, no, like this has really real effects long term that are actually going against everything you're saying you're trying to prevent in the first place by giving this type of education. And so that's kind of how I ended up and starting my sexuality research. And then that kind of translated over to public health. That's wonderful. So I'm curious if we can just unpack that part a little bit too about the failure of abstinence only programs and specifically how black folks are disadvantaged by those programs. I'm really interested to hear more. There's a lot of federal funding that can go into abstinence only sex education programs. And some places, and these are particularly Southern states where 
if you want to even be able to receive federal funding for like a health education type of class, like it has to be an abstinence only or abstinence based type of class. And so it was, it was disproportionately found that the, the schools that needed that funding were in kind of poor neighborhoods, which also happened to be disproportionately communities of color. And so we found that there were a disproportionate amount of abstinence-only sex education classes occurring in communities of color. Generally speaking, in the South, there are disproportionate rates of STIs and HIV in communities of color, which that's a whole other host of reasons. But abstinence-only sex education is definitely not about to help with that with that issue. And so, cause it's not teaching you to use condoms or protection, condoms, yeah. it's not teaching you to protect yourself. It's not teaching you how to say no and very mm-hmm. real situations. So even like those sexual negotiation skills, like none of that. And so you're ending up with people who are going to have sex, but not knowing how to advocate for themselves, not knowing where to go for resources and then not being able to access resources as well, because we already have so much, underfunded medical centers, like there's not enough support for people in these places. And abstinence only sex education was kind of just starting it really young that, you know, the only way you can maybe not end up in a terrible situation in the future is to not have sex, which just wasn't going to work out. And so it was a big project that kind of just looked at how people's experiences with their sex education programs translated into their sexual decision-making as an adult and what they wish they had learned. It was, so it was a multi-layered project that took some time, but I think the most compelling part of that was looking at the correlation of abstinence-only sex education program funding going up and also the rates of STIs and HIV going up in those younger demographics at the same time. So, yeah, it's terrifying. And then if you do become pregnant and you're a Black woman in Georgia, you also are potentially falling into the statistical group of being in a state that has the highest maternal and infant mortality rates in the country. So it's a really intergenerational, long endemic problem. Interestingly, when I went back to do med school, I had to do my undergrad and then my post back because I had left school at 16 to apprentice to be a midwife. So I had to like do everything. And my undergraduate research thesis project was on what young people want in their sex education classes. This was 25, 28 years ago, I did focus groups with high school teenagers to ask them what they wanted. I'm so curious because it sounds like you did a little bit of that asking and digging around too. What do you find that teenagers feel would benefit them most in terms of the conversations and the education? So interestingly enough, a lot of the people that I interviewed discussed wanting to know where to go to get low-cost resources, low-cost condoms, STI testing, HIV testing. So low-cost care. They wanted to know about pleasure. Masturbation was a, a particular pain point, I think, in the sex education classes. And so there was a lot of 
misinformation about all types of crazy things that would happen if you were masturbating. And so just knowing that that was okay, was something that a lot of people talked about wanting to know. Knowing their anatomy was another thing Mm -hmm. that people wanted to know. A lot of times there were a lot of women who were saying that they didn't know where their clitoris was until they were like a full adult. And so they had been having sex for years and years and years and had just never known where this was, that it was like a a separate internal structure. And so just having like basic things, like basic knowledge about even how your body works is like what they're not telling you. My husband was a high school teacher in Atlanta for 10 years. I won't name the school, but um, it was a private school. And I, being the midwife, was sort of like the covert place where some of the teenagers would come. Now they're in their 40s and some of them still come and ask me questions about their pregnancies or their partner's pregnancies and babies. It's really fun. But this one particular young woman, she was 16 and she and her boyfriend were planning to have sex and she wanted to get birth control. So I was explaining different options to her. And I talked about a diaphragm and a cervical cap and the pill and IUD. And when I was explaining the diaphragm, and the cervical cap, I said, it goes over your cervix. Now this was like a very elite private school, very well-educated international kids. She just looked at me. She said, what's my cervix? And I was like, okay, wait, we need to hit the brakes. You got to know your body parts before you're putting other people's body parts into them. And she just had no idea. And studies have really shown that even in Ivy League colleges, something like 30% of young women don't know their anatomy at all. They can't describe the difference between a vulva and a vagina or where their clitoris is. So (sighs) we teach what Christopher Columbus is. We could ditch that and start teaching where the clitoris is. (laughs) like other things to discover that are not colonizer. Yeah. And even outside of like the pleasure politics of it all, like not knowing your anatomy can have very real medical consequences. Absolutely. I feel like there is so much potential for understanding the intersection of personal empowerment, particularly for women where, where pleasure has not been part of the conversation And just our ability in general to ask for, vocalize, and get what we need and want, and also say no, or this doesn't feel right. And just the ability to articulate those things is a really huge potential kind of collateral benefit. Yeah, definitely. I I do think that in the course of doing this work, I have become immensely more confident of a person. I was always more quiet and and shy. And there's really not that much space to be quiet and shy in this work. And so it definitely has pushed me to get out of the box and to really say what I mean. (laughs) And I think, especially being like a Black woman, that idea of like saying what you mean can kind of be seen as like a bad thing. And so I think there is kind of like a pressure to be more quiet or to like avoid that. Oh, like you're really- Like the trope of a certain kind of, yeah. And I think in this space, I have kind of learned, it doesn't matter. I can be as loud as I want. (laughs) And it's fine. And it's, it's necessary. And people- even if they don't want to hear what I have to say, they're going to hear what I'm going to say. And so, well, I want to hear what you're going to say to this listening community. And I'm also really hoping that for those of you who are listening, that you are comfortable and open with 
sharing this conversation in this video with your teenagers, male or female, or however and whoever they be and how they identify. Because, you know, Imani's example here is so powerful in that, in some ways, this positive orientation to your body and to your knowledge and to your career and this research, which is so important, kind of started at home in, in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, it really did. I think it's so interesting how these little, I say little moments are big to, they were, it was big to me at the time, but like these little things of like this high school education class can really just change the course of like years into the future. And that's really happening in a negative direction for so many teenagers as well. And so I really do think if you are a parent and you can work up the courage to talk to your kid about sex, definitely do. It's going to be cringy a little bit, but I think it's so worth it in the long run. And sometimes you may not want to sit there with your, your daughter or son or child, but sometimes you can just sort of like send them the link and then yeah. don't, you know, then you can ask questions later because then they can watch it and they probably will. They're going to be like, oh, this is cringy, but I'm going to watch it. And just maybe I'll tell my mom and maybe not, but that's also just sometimes sharing resources. I did when my nephew who's now in his forties was 13, he had a bar mitzvah. And so for his bar mitzvah present, I gave him a copy of our bodies ourselves for teenagers. And my sister-in-law was like, what did you give him? Did you give him porn? Cause he keeps going in the bathroom and reading it. And I'm like, no, it's not porn. It's <laughs> about his body and he's probably just embarrassed. So he's going in there and reading it, but having this access to information is so important. So speaking of you work with plan C, which is an incredible organization. Can you tell everyone what plan C is and why we need to know about it? I definitely can. So <laughs> Plan C is an information campaign for abortion pill access in the U.S. So specifically, Plan C provides research-driven information about abortion pills, so where they're found online, how they're used, and how they can facilitate safe at-home abortions. And so what we're most known for is the Plan C Guide to Pills, which is the only state-by-state -state directory that will let you know where and how people are accessing abortion pills in your specific state. And so it's honestly, it's a beautiful website. It's probably one of the like cutest websites I've seen and a minute and it's it has so much information and so once you put in your state it can give you information about abortion pills by mail either via telehealth international pharmacies and then it also just gives you support resources so if you need medical support if you need legal support if you need financial support, uh, all of those resources kind of live on this site so that it's kind of just like a one-stop shop for people to find all the information they could possibly need about medication abortion and specifically mailed abortion pills. And you said something in the webinar that you gave that I listened to and watched, and it really struck me. And I would love to start out this conversation with the statement you made, which is abortion pills can promote reproductive justice. And you talked really beautifully about body autonomy and decision-making. And you also talked about this option sometimes being the entree for women, especially women who are economically or otherwise marginalized as the first time 
that they've experienced body autonomy? Yeah. So I think the idea about self-managing abortion, which is essentially when you are using abortion pills to kind of do your own abortion at home without a provider present. The idea, even that you can do a medical procedure by yourself in your own home, like surrounded by your things, your people, like it's just not something that we hear about a lot. I think so much of what we, what we see today is a lot of over-medicalization of things and And so much money having to be spent to access the care that you need. And so while abortion pills can range in price, there are a lot of options like Aid Access, who is offering low cost or even free abortion pills to people who need them. And even on the higher end of abortion pills, so because they can kind of go up to like $470, $500 if you're trying to get them like next day, two day shipping, the average in clinic abortion procedure costs $600. Yeah. I mean, I worked um, as a provider in a low income community outside of Boston and for people who were outside the range of doing medication abortion, who needed to go to Planned Parenthood for a surgical medical abortion, it was easily six or $800. And most people could not afford that. And insurance, like it's not, it's not going to help you. In a lot of cases there are, especially if you're on public insurance, there are so many like high to mid clauses are like, you can't use this money for abortion services. And so it's really putting a lot of people in bad financial situations to access a really essential healthcare service. And so abortion pills and specifically male abortion pills give you an option to have this abortion procedure in your own home. You can basically decide who is going to be around you. And it can kind of help with other costs that if you are in a, let's say you're in a restricted state that is not going to allow in-clinic abortion procedures. And so now you are thinking about traveling out of state, but you don't have the resources to take a day to three days sometimes because of waiting periods off of work to do this procedure. You might have kids who need to stay somewhere while you're going to do this. Like those are you might not have a car, a yeah. the plane, train, or automobile. And yeah. All that's going to add up. And so being able to have these mailed to your home can reduce a lot of barriers to abortion access. And I think that that is just one of the ways that medication abortion can act as a tool for reproductive justice. It can really give you the ability to take control of your own health care, which I think is something that a lot of people are wanting to do, especially now in the COVID era. I think the idea of being able to have some control over what's happening to you is really necessary and comforting right now. And this is not to say that medication abortion is going to be the right decision for everyone. There are obviously a lot of reasons why somebody might want to go the in-clinic route instead, but I definitely think as an option, it is a really great one for people to know about and to have access to. And in some of the places where these in-clinic procedures are being so heavily restricted, I think it's one of the only options that is there. And so uh, you definitely should know about it. 
you mentioned medicalization and I really do believe that this is yet another area, you know, as a midwife before I was a physician and I still consider myself a midwife. I mean, the over-medicalization of birth, the over-medicalization of menopause, the over-medicalization of pretty much everything from the first period after the last is so rampant. And this is such a, a really powerful example of what our bodies can do. Reminders that these processes, our bodies know how to take care of them really beautifully and safely. Let's talk about why there is so much stigma because abortion pills have been available for what, 35 years now, 30 years in the US? So they were FDA approved for use in the US in 2000. So in the US, it's only been about 22-ish years, but internationally, it's been over 30 years. And in other countries, including adjacent Canada, most Western European countries, but even countries where you would think there's very limited healthcare access, like India. Yeah. My understanding is that this is the most common way that women will will manage the need for an abortion. And I think you have some statistics on this compared to the US. I actually have a really a very interesting statistic about India in particular, because around 70% of abortions that do happen there are being done with abortion pills that were gotten over the counter. This is, I went to the pharmacy, I picked this up and I went home. Do you, like, mm-hmm. And so I think even, even that is just like, come on, like we can, we can have this. Or when we look at in Mexico, for example, which is a very Catholic country, women being able to have legal access. And when we really are behind the times here, and what, like Canada and Europe is something like 90%? Mm-hmm. About 90% of all abortion procedures are medication abortion procedures, at least early abortion procedures, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So for those who are listening and aren't familiar with what we mean by medication abortion, there are two medications and they can be used together or one can be used separately. And there's new data on that because it used to be thought until like the last couple of months that we had to do the combo. So SMAs, we're talking about self-managed abortions is the acronym. Mm -hmm. Talk about the medications. The medication abortion procedure is a combination of two medications, which are mifepristone and misoprostol. And what they do, so mifepristone is that first medication that you take And it stops the flow of progesterone to like a developing pregnancy. So it won't grow anymore. And then misoprostol is the next set of pills that you take. And you take about four to eight, depending on how far along you are. And those ones start the uterine contractions that will help to empty the contents of the uterus. And so it's two medications that work together. The whole process takes about 48 hours because you do have to take the misoprostol 24 to 48 hours after the mifepristone. So it really just depends on when you decide to take it, how long the process will last. But once you take those misoprostol pills, the whole process takes around six to eight-ish hours. Granted, there can be some 
residual bleeding for a couple of weeks, but it should be very light and manageable and it won't like affect your day-to-day activities. But yes, so those are the two medications that make up the procedure, which is really great to know because I think a lot of people think that it's only one pill. Yeah. And so the MIFI is, or as we call it, is prescription only. The mesoprostol is actually available in pharmacies too, or you can get a prescription. Yes. it At least for now. Yes. <laughs> it, yeah. It depends a little bit on where you are, but mesoprostol as a drug is actually a really interesting one because the whole kind of history of medication abortion was that women in Brazil kind of found that this medication that was typically prescribed for stomach ulcers had this (laughs) unfortunate side effect of ending pregnancies. And so that kind of led to being like, Hey, this drug can kind of end in pregnancies. And so, and still to this day, misoprostol is used on its own uh, as its own medication abortion procedure. And it is still recommended by the World Health Organizations in places where mifepristone is hard to obtain. Originally, it was thought to be less effective to use misoprostol, yeah. but as you were just saying, like a couple of months ago, it just came out that actually it's probably not any less effective than the combination, but it will be a slightly more uncomfortable process misoprostol, especially the amount that you have to take to do the misoprostol alone method will cause a lot more gastrointestinal symptoms, but it can be done. And safety. Yeah. So there's a lot of misunderstanding. First of all, you know, kind of to the point of health education, sexuality education class that you had in ninth grade, you know, the scare tactics around these pharmaceuticals, you could write a horror book about all the things that actually are not true side effects of it. Like you'll get cancer, you'll be infertile. All of that is complete myth. Can you address the safety of these medications? We know it's way safer than being pregnant. They're some of the safest pharmaceuticals to take even compared to something like Tylenol. So let's, let's, let's hear your take on that from plan C. Yeah, let's talk about safety. This is actually something that we get asked a lot because I think a lot of people think with all the restrictions, this medication must be like one of the most dangerous things to have ever hit the streets, but it's really not. It's actually quite a safe medication. The complication rate for medication abortion is less than 1%. So like it's probably one of the safest things out there. And you were talking about it being safer than Tylenol. I think a lot of people don't really think about things that could go wrong with Tylenol because it is over the counter. And so people think, oh, it's over the counter. It must be safe, which is not entirely true. There are a lot of things that are sold that are not safe for you that are are easy to get. But the medication abortion procedure itself, much safer than childbirth, safer than a lot of over-the-counter medications, immensely safer than something like Viagra, which is another really easy to get medication, which, you know, one could argue shouldn't be. And so what we're really seeing is that a lot of these restrictions have absolutely nothing to do with medical safety. It's really more so just about controlling people's reproductive choices, their healthcare options, and 
it's a political game more so than it is a safety concern. Yeah, it puts the power in the physician's hands and the state's hands rather than in our own. Yeah. So I think part of the reason why physicians were a little bit slower to prescribe abortion pills in the U.S. is before, especially before COVID, when they lifted that in-person dispensing requirement, there were so many hoops that had to go through to be able to prescribe mifepristone. Yeah. We had to actually do, when I was back in clinic, the clinic accessed the medications for us, but we actually had to do a directly observed therapy for the MIFI. So we had to give it there in the clinic, basically watch the person take as if it were like tuberculosis medication, which we have to do dots, directly observe therapy. And then we'd send someone home with the MISO. Which is so interesting because it's like, you're going to have to send them home to finish it anyway. And so yeah. it's like you really are doing all of this for the medication that honestly probably has the less symptoms and the misoprostol. Yeah. And so there were so many hoops that providers had to jump through and registries and blocking pharmacists from being able to. So a lot of things went into making it, I think, less common in the US and COVID really kind of turned the tables on that. And so now we're actually seeing for the first time that the majority of abortions in the US are starting to be medication abortions. And so I think the most recent number that came out was 54% in 2020. So um, people are kind of starting to know that this is an option that it's mm-hmm. different than plan B, which is something else yeah. we get a lot and that it might be the right option for them. So for me, what I always told or tell, continue to tell women is plan to take a couple of days off. If you can, if you have other children at home, have somebody who can support them, especially when things start to get active. You mentioned about six to eight hours of cramping discomfort, and it can be different for every individual. So some people may just need some ibuprofen and a heating pad. Um, for some people, it's it's more significant. The complication rate is extremely, extremely low. What are some of the things that you encourage women or people using this procedure to look out for in plan C? or what to expect in general and then what to look out for. Yeah. So I think when we're talking about preparing for the procedure, we typically say have a couple things on hand. So loose fitting clothing, um, heating pads, like ibuprofen or Tylenol, just for like general pain management, things like ginger or white rice or bread or crackers that kind of are um, more anti, anti-nausea because it can cause some nausea distraction. So uh, if you are a coloring book person, you can have a coloring book. If you are a Grey's Anatomy binger, then (laughs) (laughs) I started that in med school. In my first year of med school, it's the only TV show I've watched every single episode for like what, 18 years now. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. TV comedies, if you can handle it, you might not be in the mood for that. And I, we do say to, if you can, to let someone know if you have someone you trust, just let them know so they can check on you, maybe yeah. bring you some food or just, you know, see how you're doing because it can be as, as much as it can be a empowering process. If you feel scared and alone, it can be an isolating process. And so we want to make sure that people feel as supported and safe as they can. And 
if you are going through this process in your own home, there are resources that you can call. So on our site, we link to things uh, like the miscarriage and abortion hotline, which is a completely free confidential medical hotline that's open from 8am to 11pm in all time zones. And they um, can answer any medical question you could possibly have about the process. And they won't ask you your name. They won't ask you where you got the pills from. Um, They won't even tell you their name. So it's, it's all, it's all confidential. And they'll let you know if what you're experiencing is right or normal or to be expected if they think you need to go in for care if you do need to go in for care what you can say to protect yourself and this is a really important point i mean yeah. all of this is really important and for those of you who are listening over at my website just at avivaram.com there's an article on how to have a safe miscarriage at home mm-hmm. and it's all the same and i understand that for someone having a miscarriage who wants to be pregnant associating that with an intentional termination may be uncomfortable to hear. But for those of you who are comfortable with it right now, that is the article that I have. And it's it's literally all the same things to look out for, you know, how much bleeding is normal. Um, there's a little bit of temperature increase that can be normal with the medications, but you know, when it's a fever, what to look for. The other thing I just wanted to, to mention is that with the medications, for people who are in unsafe home environments for any reason where somebody might see somebody taking some of the medications orally, they can also be used vaginally. And then you mentioned if someone does have to go in, um, it's really important to know that no matter what somebody tells you or coerces you to say, if you're in an illegal place, there is no blood test or labs or anything that can show that you use these medications. I think that's where you were probably going with that. So I'll Pass back to you. No, no, but you're exactly right. There are no tests that would be able to prove that you took these medications. And so if if you are having a lot of bleeding, and normally we say if you are soaking through two of like the very like super extra absorbent maxi pad types of pads in two hours, so more than two in like two hours, you might want to consider going to like an urgent care or an emergency room. Yeah, that could be a hemorrhage. If that is the case, you can go in, you can say, I think I'm having a miscarriage and the treatment protocol is exactly the same. So if you, if you were having like an incomplete abortion or a, a, a miscarriage, they would treat it the same way. And so you don't have to tell them that you took these pills. It's, it, it, would, it wouldn't change the care that you would receive. But it could, if you did say that you did negatively change the care, if you had, if you said that in certain places, the only thing I will say about that, uh, is because yes, with the misoprostol, you can take it either, um, sublingually or vaginally. If you do choose to take it vaginally, there is a chance that there would be some residue that's like yes. over. And so if that's something that you're worried about, I would take it sublingually and then spit out the excess. And mm-hmm. maybe that's not something you would have to worry about, but good point. It can be done both ways, but that's the only way that in which somebody might kind of suspect that that's what happened. Imani, can we talk about how Plan C recommends or guides people who are in states where using these is or may become illegal or difficult 
how to access, because I know there's some different things that you talk about in plan C, um, getting things mailed to another state and then having somebody give them to you all these different ways. So if you could share just a couple of those for listeners who want to either help other people get access or for people who are needy to get access. Yeah, of course. So one of the main ways that people in restricted states do get uh, the abortion pills is through aid access or another type of international human rights-based organization kind of similar to them. But aid access's sole purpose is to get abortion pills to people in restricted places in the United States. And so they're very good at it because they're an international based organization. They are beholden to their country's laws and not necessarily our own. And so there is no issue for them in sending those to you. If you are feeling like you want to take even extra precautions, there are options like mail forwarding, where essentially you like rent a mailbox in a state where telemedicine is allowed. And then that would then get forwarded to your actual um, address. And so that is something that you could look into if you want to take even more safety precautions. And we have a lot of really good information on our website about the whole process of like setting up the mailbox and how all that works. And so that can really walk you through that process. But a lot of times people just go to aid access or they use another international pharmacy and there haven't been very many issues since the year 2000, there have been 24 prosecutions or attempted prosecutions on self-managed abortion. And while any is too many, there have been a lot that have happened since then. And while I don't want to minimize that risk because the risk is real and that fear is real. And as you know, you can get criminalized for something that's completely legal anyway. And I know that that is particularly true for black and brown communities. And so that is definitely something that we want to be cognizant of and help people prepare for. And so we also on our site resource out to if when house repro legal helpline, which is a free legal service that you can call and kind of figure out what the rules are in your state. You can talk to them through the options you're thinking about and they can kind of help guide you into protecting yourself as best as you can. And there are other things like the digital defense fund, which talk all about uh, digital privacy and how to make sure you're using a secure server to order pills, the best payment methods, making other emails that are um, secure and private. And so there is a lot of information and other steps you can take to protect yourself. And we have links to all of that on the guide. And on the guide, Mm -hmm. I think there's something with the directory that you had shared where there's a button you can click or a little link you can click for maybe companies or states where there have been some risk or you like stratify the risk in the directory. If you're on the guide and you click on a state where like, I don't know, like Alabama on the right hand side of the listing, there'll be a little yellow, like triangle with a little exclamation point in it that says like that there may be some legal issues with using this service. Click here to find out more and find out ways to protect yourself. And so it doesn't say if a prosecution has happened as a result of using that site. These prosecutions are from... A, a variety of different sources, and not all of them are directly 
abortion pill related. Yeah. There's some interesting work happening in the legal justice movement now too, to really separate the carceral system and criminalization of many different aspects of reproductive health. And again, particularly for black and brown and first nations women, that is kind of paralleling what these changes are with Roe, but it still has been a really small number. Yeah, but we want people to be as safe as possible. So definitely, if this is something that you are thinking of, look through those resources. And and just in general, those digital privacy tips are useful, even if you just don't want them tracking like your shopping habits. Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's so much information. There's now this, all this information coming out about even like menstrual apps and data sharing happening. One question I have for you, and and then we'll wrap. I, and I want to talk about one fun thing or like a movement we can we can do with Plan C. But um, can you just talk about Plan C's and your thoughts on advanced provision? So advanced provision is when you get a prescription for a medication before you need it. So essentially aid access is one of the biggest groups offering it right now. And they are sending out abortion pills to people to just have on hand in case you need it. And so right now it's a good option for people who are worried about, I want to have it as soon as possible. Like as soon as I know that I'm pregnant, like I want to be able to take it which is important if you live in states where it's an eight week or six mm-hmm. week law, at least keeps you within that window, mm-hmm. possibly less emotionally, physically demanding experience when you're actually doing it. Yeah. Um, but also, as you mentioned earlier, the cost goes up sometimes if you need it right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So aid access tends to have um, fairly low cost. So it tends to be about $150 and it can go all the way down to zero if you just tell them that you, you can't afford that. And essentially the downside about aid access is that it can take up to 14 to 21 days for it to get to you because it's coming from overseas. And so mm-hmm. that is not feasible for some people. Some people are going to need it in a week or less. And so that's kind of where you see those price differences come come up. And the advantage of advanced provision. But one of the things that there has been discussion around flooding the market so that there's yeah. access. So currently, and we work really closely with aid access and they we haven't yet heard that there is a supply problem. So this is something that they, they have been thinking about for a while. And so they've planned and planned for this exact situation to happen. And while I think people are kind of flocking to it right now, I think over time, it'll kind of die down a little bit with people wanting to get advanced provision pills. But also we're trying to get more and more providers to kind of get interested in offering advanced provision as a service. And so once we can do that, then we can kind of get more people who are able to get it from more sources to kind of um, mitigate that supply problem. But as of right now, there hasn't been a supply issue that was told to us. And sometimes when people hear overseas medications, they're like, oh my gosh, what what is that like? What is the quality like? But the medications are the medications are the medications. Yeah. And it's actually, people get medications online all the time. Like this is not Mm -hmm. a medication abortion specific thing. Like people get insulin, people get all types of things. Oh yeah. My patients are getting prescriptions all over the place. Three supplies of things. Yeah. Yeah. it, It can just be cheaper overall. And 
the really great thing about Plan C's guide is that we researched all the places that were on there. We've like test ordered from them. We've had the pills tested. So people really can feel safe and secure knowing that like, if you are going to one of those places that's on the guide, we've ordered from it. Like the pills are what they say they are and it's going to be safe and it's going to be effective. I want to talk with you about something that maybe folks can do, which is a sticker bombing campaign to spread the word about plan C. Yeah. Do you want to share how that can be done? Yeah. So on our website, we have these really, really beautiful stickers that have uh, just information about how to get to the guide and you, they're free to order between 25 and 500 and you can order as many times as you would like. And so what we've been doing and seeing other groups do is kind of get their friends together uh, to drive around the city or wherever they are, go on their campus and just put stickers places and make a whole like fun activity out of it. I've even seen people like offer prizes for like the most amount of like stickers put up and it's become a really fun a fun way to kind of just spread information without having to be too vocal or out there because that's not everybody's cup of tea. Like not everybody wants to be the face of the abortion movement. <laughs> Y'all, there's small stickers. You can peel yeah. <laughs> lean against the lamppost, <laughs> put it up there, get it on a bulletin board so that we can spread the word. And again, as we said earlier, this is 90% use in Canada, in Europe, 70% in India. We're just a bit behind the times at 54%. So everything we can do to spread the word, we'll put all the links over at my website. Imani, you're incredible. You're a font of wisdom and knowledge already. And I can't wait to hear more about what you do when you finish this PhD. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you to Plan C for sharing you with On Health Podcast. I've been asking my guests this question. If you could tell your younger self anything, what would you tell your younger self? And you're already a pretty much a younger self from my vantage point, but still, what would you tell your younger self now? God, I I think I would say just to really trust yourself, to know that, just to trust that you have your best interest in, in mind and in your heart and that you have the tools that you need to do what you want to do. Well, thank you. You're an inspiration and just a beam of light and hope for the direction that we can go in with reproductive health and sexuality awareness. So thank you. And I hope everyone has enjoyed listening, found this valuable. We'll share this information around, you know, bookmark it so you know how to get back to it if you need it. And then for those of you who want to donate to Plan C, Um, or get involved, there's a Plan C ambassador link and a Plan C donation link over at my website, avivaram.com for you can Google Plan C and explore their incredible website. Thank you, everyone. And see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. 
While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.